are recording, and you can go ahead and uh, you have to press play whenever you're ready. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. It is. I, it is. I moved it back. Yeah, all you have to do okay. is hit the button on the bottom, the space bar. Okay, so... Just hit the space bar, the button on the bottom. Space bar. Space bar. Space bar, right, right here. That's the space bar. Sorry. That's a button. <laughs> it's not back at the beginning. Now it is. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Cryptcast. Uh, this is episode seven. We're going to be talking about the festival, the film festival circuit, I should specify. And more, most importantly, the power of hype. Uh, hello, I am award-winning filmmaker Mark Ritchie, CEO of Cryptic Pictures. I am CCO of Cryptic Pictures, award-winning filmmaker Christian Stavrakis. You don't have to sound so excited. Well, I don't mean to toot my own horn saying I'm an award-winning <laughs> Okay, all right. But we have won awards, and this is why. Uh, uh, we are going to be uh, sharing, uh, first we're going to be talking about festival, the festival circuit, the film festival circuit. And the first thing I want to say is, if you do not have an account as a filmmaker, you do not have an account with, without, with the company or with the online service called withoutabox.com, it is now time to set one up. This is an indie filmmaker's number one resource for the film festival circuit. And this is where you're going to begin your journey. I spent countless hours researching and handpicking specific festivals at which I felt our film would stand a chance. And because we all know the film festival circuit is a racket. And if you're not sure about that, go find immediately a copy of the movie Official Rejection by Paul Osborne. And uh, you will see very quickly how the world of film festivals works. Uh, and, and sometimes doesn't work. There was a film... When we first started researching film festivals, I remember you mentioning that there was one that we needed to do near your hometown, and then you subsequently responded, uh, we didn't necessarily need to do that one. The gentleman who was running it, actually, his film was the number one yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, won yeah. won the, 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 the audience favorite award or whatever. And anybody can run a film festival. Anybody can start and promote a film festival. Um, and a lot of these film festivals are ways for somebody to make money by uh, by taking entries and entry fees and you know renting a space and putting a show together and what you find out and uh, the movie official rejection you, you'll see this that a lot of these guys have no idea what they're doing that they just you know they, they publicize it as a film event and a lot of filmmakers end up submitting their stuff and paying a lot of entry fees and a lot of the, the most of the time in fact when even if you've paid an entry fee your film will get rejected and uh, that happened to us there was a film festival in Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, I thought, well, we're a shoe, shoe in there because it's a locally made film. One of the guests at the film festival is in the movie. And I should say now, even though our film takes place in Baltimore, it was primarily shot in Pittsburgh. Shot in so. Pittsburgh, yeah. So I thought, well, for sure we'll get into that one. They turned us down. Uh, there are a lot of festivals that we thought, you know, it's a it's a new sort of edgy horror movie. A lot of horror festivals that we have, uh, they turned us down too. And uh, we got turned down by Sundance, which is no surprise. But, uh, you know, you can anybody can submit to Sundance as long as you pay the entry fee. The issue being there, we submitted to the wrong... Uh, the wrong niche. They have, yeah. Right. They, they had have, like a, uh, what was it they called? They have categories. Uh, you know, it's like the midnight... Sundance after dark After or something dark like is that, where yeah. we should have submitted. And instead we submitted <clears throat> to the, the primary uh, festival uh, at Sundance, which is the, the Sundance Film Festival. Right. But they have a specific uh, sidebar niche festivals that run simultaneously mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily... They're part of Sundance, but you're not entered into the Sundance competition where a lot of the studios, I mean, Sundance is now, you know, it's a major marketing uh, stop for the uh, studios. 
uh, and it's where you know they're going to pick up. It's where Harvey Weinstein's going to pick up his next Oscar winner. Um, and so the films that are getting in are extremely high budget. Uh, the, the, you know, a lot of micro budget films don't make it into the the, the Sundance Film Festival, uh, the main Sundance Film Festival niche. Whereas the After Dark, what was it? it I think it was I think Sun, right. yeah, Sundance, Sundance After, After Dark. After Dark. Which is for like micro-budget films. And, the, and particularly course, scary movies. And we entered in, we didn't enter into that, unfortunately. Yeah, we, we entered have. in the wrong category. So. But there also is an issue that uh, most people aren't aware of, is that a lot of festivals, in order to screen your film, they want to be the first place your film is seen. Uh, in other words, if, if your film is not premiering at their festival, they don't want to have you. Mm-hmm. And also, if your film... Is, is playing at any other festivals. They don't want to have you. So you have to very carefully read the rules and regulations of every festival you want to enter uh, before you do so because you may be signing away your premiere rights or, uh, you know, the, there's, there are a lot of loopholes and catches that you may not be aware of. What I did was I, I literally would research every horror film festival that was listed on Without a Box and there were hundreds and I would then go to their sites, to their individual websites. I'd research who their past winners were. I'd watch that film, the winning film, if I could get a copy of it on, or watch it on YouTube or stream it. Or I would watch the trailers for the winning films. Any, anything I could get my hands on to kind of identify what was popular at that particular festival. Because every festival has does have its own niche. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, unless the, it, the festival specifically says the found footage film festival, which... I don't know if there is one. But, I, I think there I, is. I think we should start one. <laughs> I, I think there is one. Um, we should probably start one. Yeah. Um, but all of this research, hours and hours of research that I put in benefited us because I really hand-selected the film festivals. During that process, however, uh, the, and, and, and we ended up winning four awards at a variety of different film festivals, I, I believe, for that very reason. All the same, during that process, Chris is looking at me going, it's a racket. Why are you wasting your time? Why are we spending post-production funds on this? Why are we doing this? And I kept saying, look, we need to build hype for the film. And one way that we can do that is by slapping laurel leaves on our website, on our posters, on any news releases that we have. And we won them at the four festivals. Was it four? At least four. Five? Uh, there were three festivals that we had won. A, no, four, four individual festivals that we won awards at. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. We're up to five awards now, I think, uh, because of the Northern Virginia Film Festival. Right, right, right. So, so um, that adds legitimacy. Because we are now award-winning filmmakers yeah, and recognized, in, in, and it's not just one festival that we received awards. In. It was several. It was several, and, <clears throat> and that was that was a confidence builder. But it also helped us understand: wow, there is there's something to this film that perhaps we were missing. Uh, because when we looked at the film, we were like, "That's that's not award-winning quality." But we were basing it on previous award winners from Sundance. Yeah, I mean, we were looking at you know you content, know. and it's it's kind of a it's essentially a horror film. You know, I mean. And horror films don't typically win. They're certainly not winning at the Oscar, the Academy right. Awards, you know. So uh, we went into it with low expectations, and we actually came out with a few awards. And so we could slap those laurel leaves on our poster. And any advertising uh, material we, we posted afterwards, it would say the award-winning film. And uh, eventually people started to review the film because they were seeing it at certain screenings, even though it wasn't officially in release. And we're getting good reviews. We're getting good feedback from people who are at the screenings and speaking directly to us. So we knew that we had struck a nerve with a particular audience that saw what we were trying to do and appreciated it. And that's primarily the the main value of attending film festivals is that for, for people to see your product while it's still fresh and to start getting the word out, people will say, yeah, I saw that. I heard about that movie. 
But obviously you can't enter every film festival. You at some point have to narrow down which festivals you qualify for. You need to examine who the previous winners were to see if it's even worthy of the film that you have. What is the content that has won before? Uh, you need to you know, go through what types of films fared best, what the geographic feasibility of these festivals are, because you obviously want to attend. So you're not going to be doing something overseas unless you can afford to fund a trip overseas. Not that we didn't enter film festivals overseas. We did, but we just knew up front that we weren't going to be able to attend. And y- y- there are a lot of other pertinent factors that you need to, that you yourself as a filmmaker need to factor in when selecting these festivals. It's a laborious effort. But it paid off for us, putting the time and effort. We didn't just go, well, we're going to enter South by Southwest and Sundance and call it a day. I knew that we needed laurel leaves, not only for our own legitimacy, but for the, the media uh, legitimacy that we would attract. And and it paid off. It did pay off. Um, in our first podcast, we actually discussed you know the marginal success of Hollywood tentpole films, how these films walk away with, if you're lucky... Uh, out of a billion dollar revenue uh, income from from box office sales, you're looking at about a hundred million dollar return, which isn't a lot. It's and like ten percent. It's ten percent yeah. is what you're looking at. You're looking at about a ten percent payoff return. And uh, some people, when they hear that, I think are flabbergasted. Are you kidding me? The, the movie made a billion dollars. Well, when you factor in the cost of the, as we mentioned before, you factor in the cost of star power, uh, particularly marketing campaigns worldwide. Print and um, advertising. Print and advertising, so on and so forth. You're looking at only a 10% return. But Hollywood is very, very good <clears throat> at saving face and making it sound like, wow, we made a billion dollars even though none of that made it into our pockets save yeah. 10%. And this is where I want to kind of uh, start verging on the topic or the conversation of hype, which is what we're going to focus on. We have a story to tell about one of our screenings, of the screening that we did in New York, and how that sort of plays into this. Now, hype is something that I'm not so sure you you understood it from a technical perspective. I'm not sure that when we first started out, you were so comfortable playing with hype. Uh, yeah, I wasn't comfortable because I didn't want. See, the, the the big the big thing lurking in the back of my head was was Blair Witch. Which our film probably close more closely resembles than anything else, mm-hmm. and the marketing was what sold that film. That people were convinced that it was a real event, and this was a real document of but some of people it, that had really died. Isn't that hype? That is hype. That is hype, and it worked. However, once they came out of hiding and said, "Oh, we're not really dead. It was just a movie," everyone was was pissed off and felt like they'd been <laughs> taken advantage of. I see. Where and you're uh, okay. you know, Mike and and Josh and Heather say people were you know confronting them on the street and cussing them out because they thought you. they were worried you know and uh, so I didn't want to I didn't want to say this is a true story and uh, even though it is based on a true story it really is and we could have used that phrase and we didn't uh, you mean our film was based our on film a true was, yeah our it. film was based on a true story the true story of course being that you and I made films together in high school <laughs> right everything else was manufactured so um, we could have gone that angle and we didn't and and Mark was always big on on making the most extravagant version of of the truth possible, and yes. I was always trying to yeah. pull him back. And uh, well, I grew up in the eighties. Yeah, I grew up in in a, in an era where hype was mastered. I believe in the eighties. I, I, I'm not sure why. I I, I, I just remember MTV was all hype. I remember the World Wrestling Federation, now WWE, 
was all hype. This is what they used to fill seats, and it all became about who had who sold out the most concerts, who had uh, the biggest uh, tickets, you know, the, uh, the, the 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 highest ticket sales for any specific tour, musical tour. What movie? And that's when Hollywood was all about. This movie's got to make. It, it, we broke the next box office record, and and we need to break the next box office record after that. And Star Wars, you know, the the, the most profitable film, or or the, yeah, the, they, the you know the biggest box office. Uh, uh, when something becomes the top box office grossing movie of, of all, all time, time, they take out a full page ad and then trumpet yeah, that. Yeah, and it was it, that, that to me was hype. Um, you know, as a as a as a, a student of the '80s, so to speak, because it's now something that I kind of look back on and study. Things were changing. The movie industry was certainly changing at that time, and but but so was music. The music industry was changing. Everything was all about hype. I think about you know, uh, Gordon Gecko's speech: "Greed is good." Yeah, and you know, it was all. It was just hype, 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 hype. And I remember, I remember when I when I joined, said Students Against Drunk Driving, mm-hmm. and. You know, we would we were when we mentioned this in one of our previous uh, uh, podcasts. Yeah, that that you know the, the drug problem was so huge, but sad. A lot of what we did in sad was hype. Hmm. Um, sometimes I would have to pull back and say, wait a minute, are we should we be sharing this story? Isn't it a bit graphic or gratuitous? Um, or they'd start putting you know the the, the cars that were mangled in front of the high schools mm-hmm. during prom season. That's hype, yeah. You know what I mean. And so I think, really, we hadn't done that before. That was a that was a product of of eighties and and the power of hype, the power of ex, of extravagant. Um, well, it still works. Look at the advertising. Uh, what the last year, the rash of clown sightings. That you know, maybe one guy was dressed like a clown somewhere by the side of the road, and mm-hmm. suddenly all over the country, people were reporting right, right. clowns lurking in the woods. And that's you know that kind of thing can just take off. It's an organic phenomenon, and, and sometimes you can make it happen, but more often it happens on its own. You know, a great story surrounding hype, talk about the 80s and talk about hype, mm-hmm. is the rock band The Police. Um, and most of you guys, most everybody that, were, that is listening here should be familiar with The Police. Sting, lead singer of The Police. Stuart Copeland, yeah. And if you know The Police, then you know their, their iconic song, Roxanne. When that song was released in the late 70s, it failed to chart. And it also failed to make the BBC's playlist, which the band later attributed to like the song's depiction of prostitution and the fact that nobody on the radio wanted to play it. So what did their record company do? Their record company began promoting this idea that uh, the song's been banned. It's been banned from the BBC. The BBC, BBC never banned Roxanne, yeah. even because of its content. But um, Banned in the UK. And I remember uh, Stuart Copeland at one point talking about he he admitted to that 23 years sort of after the fact because up to that point we it was unclear whether or not that was rumor or not they got a lot of mileage out of the fact that they started saying that it was banned well in some respect it was in the sense that it wasn't played right. it never made the playlist but it was never officially tagged as a banned song somebody could have played it if they wanted but that to me is hype and then the the other thing that the police did that I'll never forget was they had they had a brilliant uh, they had a brilliant promoter, and nobody was nobody was recognizing the band. And they went on this world tour, and they were playing in very small venues in small cities where foreign entities never played. And I'm talking like in Mexico, India, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Greece. They played in Egypt, places where rock bands just didn't go. Nobody went there. They were mm-hmm. people were going to Germany and to Italy and to France to play to the crowds. And they were taking photos. They would like when they were in Egypt. They went to the Sahara. They took photos 
you know what I mean, of these guys on camels. And, mm-hmm. Wow, it's a world. You know, they're traveling the world. Nobody was attending the shows. <laughs> Nobody was actually attending the police's, and, and they admit to it now. The venues were empty, yet they got a lot of mileage out of their promoter sending all of these photos to the, to the trade magazines saying, the world tour, they're dominating the world, they're playing in cities that nobody's ever played in. That is hype, folks. You need to learn how to employ hype. And once again, I need to state, or we should both state, we're not talking about lying. They never, they never, I, I don't think the term banned by the BCC is a lie. BBC. It's, or the BBC, I'm sorry. But they, it's a stretch of, it's certainly stretching the truth. Yeah. Which, again, made you slightly uncomfortable. But for me, that was the environment I grew up in. I was like, hell, if the police can get away with it, why can't yeah, I we? Think, I think WWF was the key there. Because I, I didn't watch wrestling. Oh, okay. But yeah, that's all about hype. And uh, that's a very good analogy. And there's a particular instance where we had a screening in New York City. We actually rented, by through the grace of uh, a friend of ours, Dan, who gave us the funds to rent a theater in Manhattan. Now, we found a theater that was very affordable, affordable. for you know to down, rent it for a screening. Yep. It was down in the, uh, in the East Village. And uh, we rented it for a screening, and we, we promoted all over the winter, you know... Uh, comic book shops and genre video shops and stuff all over Manhattan and left signs and saying, you know, we're having the screening. We tweeted about it and put it on Facebook. And uh, Unfortunately, and this ties into our last podcast, we were behind the eight ball with promotion. Right. We should have been promoting the screening a year out. Right. We really, sh- but, but we unfortunately, been, we were two months out and we're yeah, telling we're, people about it. We should have been on the radar by that point and we weren't. But, but we, you know, we, we did what we could. We posted signs all over the place, and we took pictures and tweeted about it and said, the screening comes, you know, free screening. And uh, nobody showed up. Well, we had one person one show One person. Up. It was Mark's, My brother. Mark's brother showed up. <laughs> uh, you, were, you were devastated. Yeah, but as soon as the credits rolled, Mark said, immediately send out a tweet thanking all the people who came to see our movie. And I said, what are you talking about? That's n- Nobody came. That's a lie. And he said, no, it's not. Kevin's here. You're just thanking the people who made the effort to come out. <laughs> and then I embellished it a little later and said, sorry to all the people we had to turn away. <laughs> you know, but uh, the truth of the matter is nobody showed up uh, because I guess there were better things to do in Manhattan on a Sunday I, night. I, quite honestly, I don't, think, I don't think that's the case at all. I, I, because since then, we've had, we had a lot of people contact us and say, I'm really angry that, you, that I never heard about your New York screening. I would love to have come. The issue being is we didn't we didn't advertise long enough. See, the reason that we keep suggesting that you begin the, the, the hype and the and the promotional campaign for your film the day you begin principal photography is because you want this to be a, a, a commonplace uh, uh, title in the lexicon of your fan base. You want your fan the minute the fans hear Mortal Remains, they should automatically go, oh yeah, that's that film that those two guys. That guy from Pittsburgh and that guy from Maryland made. Mortal Remains, yeah, the Carl Atticus film. You need to begin, it needs to become part of the conversation, of your media conversation, much earlier. Because you never know what's going to take off, what's going to go viral. And it could be something that you say, it could be a, a retweet of of yours that you made that is connected to your account and somebody ends up K-holing into your account. And There it is again. And, yeah, well, K-holing. Right. Um, but but the, the, the point being is, the power of hype is something you need to harness very early on in the process, extremely early in the process. 
And I am proud of you that you were able to to, to promote, you know, that you were willing to do that, I, I, that promote that tweet. I was starting to um, think of just really extreme things to do, like, you know, should we stage a murder? I mean, <laughs> it's really hard to get anyone's attention, to Nowadays get the attention of the media. Yeah, because Nowadays. unless you drive into a crowd and start killing people, nobody wants to hear about a new movie. Or unless you're willing to break the, the law, like similar to the uh, what that, that film Chronicle, uh, which was a found footage film. And they ended up uh, flying drones around New York City, which is illegal. And they ended up, you know, paying a massive fine for it. But hey, but there's no such thing as bad press. We're talking about that now in our podcast, right. and it's four years later. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so well, I remember the name of the film because of that. Uh, and and I, I also happened to uh, I, I saw the film when it came out. But what was the film last year, two years ago that uh, that people were screaming and, and vomiting and, and fainting in the theater, and the ambulance had to show up and take people away? And I'm sure that was a a gimmick. I, I don't remember. I remember reading about it. I don't remember the but, film. But yeah, we should have done something like that, you know, from some paramedic friend of ours. And again, that's, you know, again, hype. You know, nobody has to get hurt. Nobody really needs to die. And, and you, but, you be know, careful. Cr- create yeah. a situation where there is something, you know. You're getting attention. Attention, yeah. And, and, well, the attention that Chronicle got was all bad press, but there is no such thing as bad press as you've... As because you've you're still in the news, yeah. Right. And, and so... In this particular case, in Chronicle, the, the, these these the characters fly around. I guess I should give this some context. The characters are flying. They they learn. They develop the skill to be able to fly because they've touched this orb from outer space that gives them superpowers, basically. And spoilers, uh, so if you what, haven't seen it. Spoilers. Oh God, yeah, sorry. So <laughs> if if you you know what they were flying around were these drones that looked like people with like what what are the flying squirrels. You yeah, I mean, it looked like they had wings. I guess you know what I mean, but it wasn't wings. They looked more like flying squirrels. I guess that's the best way to describe it. But but Wait, they were flying them around, not downtown Manhattan. They were flying them just over the lakeside. But there's a no fly zone over Manhattan ever since nine eleven, and so uh, you know these guys took a hit for it. But you know they but they, they, they the should press. have gone through the legal means to be able to do it. They knew that they were never going to get permission to be able to do it, so they did it anyways. Yeah. No harm done, but at the same time, they probably scared a lot of people who were like, what the hell are those? And I wouldn't even attempt that nowadays because I think they'd get shot down. And there was a lot of that going on, too, in the 80s when films were being, you know, these cheap horror films were being re-released onto home video for the first time. Mm -hmm. And you would see the box of a movie like Snuff, and it would say the film that was made in South America, or it could could only be made in South America, where life is cheap. And you're thinking, oh my God, this is a real Snuff movie. Of course it's not. (laughs) It's it's not even a very good horror movie. But the, the box art was what got you to rent that movie, you know, and take it home and, and justify the stores buying an eighty nine ninety five copy of that VHS tape. God, do you remember the days when you when you, when you dreamed about buying Star Wars on VHS and it was, was so 99, yeah. 99. Oh, yeah. I remember going into the best company down in on Rockville Pike. They we were going to get an Atari game and they had a little glo- locked glass case with I think five VHS tapes in it. It was the Godfather Friday the 13th. Come to think of it, they're all Paramount titles. Hmm. The Godfather, Friday the 13th, uh, maybe Chinatown, Alien, which was Fox, 20th Century Fox, Magnetic Video. I still have that tape. <laughs> I didn't buy it there. It was like ridiculously expensive. We didn't have a VCR at the time. But it was it, it was fascinating. I thought, my God, movies in boxes. Encased. Yeah. yeah, yeah. These movies are in boxes. I mean, Accessible. The whole thing Accessible. is there. You can take it home and watch it. Yeah. That was That was like magic. And now it's even you know more accessible because of YouTube. Thank God. Uh, I mean, not that we should be, not that anybody should be pirating anything, but um, you can certainly. There's a lot of research to be done online, and, and there are a lot of films that are beyond their their copyright claim, 
and mm-hmm. uh, are streamed for free on YouTube that you can see, uh, which is a great research tool. So you've got the film festival circuit, I guess, to, to wrap things up here. You've got the film festival circuit, which you can exploit. That, that's one avenue that you can take. Hype is something that you can employ to your benefit. Interesting marketing schemes or promotional packages that you can develop, uh, so long as you're not you know, uh, lying and or breaking the law, as the case may be. Although mm-hmm. in some cases, that pays off. We came up with a variety of different marketing ploys, I guess you would call them, in order to advertise our film. One of them was, was Join the Cult, because our, our uh, uh, the filmmaker that our film is about, Carl Atticus, who was this sort of the godfather of slasher films, I guess you could say, we, we, we created this, this promotional campaign where people would contact us, we would mail them a, a sticker, and their goal was to slap the sticker. Um, sticker with a picture of Carl. With a picture of Carl that said, "Do you do you remember? Do you remember Carl Atticus? Yeah. I believe, or do you do you remember Carl? Do Atticus? you remember Carl and they would Atticus? Stick it someplace significant. And we, we we told people, you know, you need to stick this someplace significant, but don't break the law. Don't don't deface any sort of uh, landmark of any sort. And then people were we people were contacting us to get stickers, and and we had people post them outside of Graceland. We had somebody posted out in France outside of Notre Dame. Auckland, New Zealand. Auckland, New Zealand. So, I mean, it paid off in the sense of we we built a following, a worldwide following, from folks that were just interested in the campaign. They wanted to know more about Carl. They wanted to join the cult and, and be part of this this you know filmmaker's story. Yeah, and also we had a, a secondary website because our primary website was mortalremainsmovie.com. But we also had mortal-remains.com. And on that page, I had just a picture. It wasn't, you can't really see the picture, but it's there. It's Carl's eyes peeking out from between these lines of text. But the, the text is in a cipher, a cipher that appears in the movie. It, 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 it figures in the plot of the movie. If you roll over the title, Mortal Remains, the title changes to those same ciphers. So now you have a key to certain letters to solve that cipher. So, you know, hopefully certain people would see that and be intrigued. And somebody did solve the cipher and send the answer in, and we sent them a poster. But we got a lot of hits on on Twitter, if I recall correctly. A lot of people that were interested by, oh, that's what a cool promo. Even if they weren't yeah. involved in the promotion or, or participating, they, they were still commenting on what a cool idea. Yeah. We, I mean, we picked up a lot of, of followers from some of these promotional campaigns who were just intrigued by the fact that we're not just p- pushing our film. But we're we're pushing a movement of sorts, you know. We're pushing I mean? the movement. We're pushing um, the mythology. The mythology of the of the character that we established, yeah. and 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 you know, our IP basically that we that we built. One of the uh, one of the final uh, promotions that we did was a vintage VHS sort of throwback promotion where we were we were selling copies of the film on on VHS, which I thought was Chris. Nobody even owns a. V- this was Chris's idea. Nobody even owns a VHS anymore. What are we doing this for? What a waste of money to invest. But he was right. We've sold to. Uh, to uh, people uh, in England, in, in the Netherlands, we yeah. just sent a copy to. I mean, and Canada. so you know, the promotions themselves were a, a, a manner of hype that we employed. And my my our point in this podcast is learn hype, understand hype, benefit from hype, and and engage your audience. You don't. You're not just. It's not just about I'm going to make the movie and sell the movie. Um, if you've got, you know, I think of George Lucas when he reserved the rights to to merchandising when he was negotiating with Fox uh, for Star Wars. What a brilliant move! He, I mean, of course, that that's what ended up funding all of Lucasfilm Limited uh-huh. was, you know, the, the merchandising rights. But he he always said that he could at least he knew that he could promote the film if he retained those rights and could make posters 
uh, and T-shirts and knickknacks and toys. And, and that so was forth. a mistake the studios never made again. Again, unfortunately, you, you'll never re- you know retain those rights unless you do what we did, which is retain the rights yourself. Never sell them to a distributor. Never sell them to Hollywood. So if anybody's interested in making Mortal Remains action figures, let us know. <laughs> we're open to suggestions. What we're going to be talking about in our next episode... Alrighty, and our uh, our next episode is episode eight. We're going to be talking about distribution and the fall of the DVD, the rise of VOD, the magic hour of Hollywood. Uh, there is a lot going on in the distribution world. We're going to talk to you about our distribution experiences. And distribution is a big, smelly kettle of fish, but we're going to open it. We're going to open it for you. We're going to talk about how we retained our rights to our film, how we're walking away with a, uh, you know what I mean, a nice 70% return, and we're going to share our, our trials, tribulations, and triumphs in the distribution realm. In the meantime, if you're interested in seeing a, co- a vintage VHS copy of our oh, yeah. film, contact us. I, I'm Pretty soon we're going to be on iTunes, um, and later on in the summer we're going to be distributing uh, DVD copies. Um, But for now, we want you to remember that you have to learn hype, understand hype, and benefit. Embrace the hype. Embrace the hype.